Y'all, I am so not ready for this episode. I'm used to talking about creating digital courses and selling them with webinars. Never in a million years did I think I would sit in my recording studio and tell the world about my sex life. Sex is not something that was spoken about openly when I was growing up. And even though I don't think I carry shame around sex, the topic makes me way more uncomfortable than maybe it should. After all, sex is a natural part of life, a beautiful form of intimacy, and for better or worse, a ubiquitous part of our culture. Sexual imagery has been around since cave paintings, but more recently, with the twin rising of free internet porn and social media, we've never been more bombarded with visions of it. I see it everywhere. Fitness accounts full of close-up pelvic thrusting and food videos seasoned with innuendo. And I even sometimes find would-be entrepreneurs, mostly targeting young men, who package their pitch of financial freedom with the promise of more and better sex. I would say unequivocally that I am not trying to create a sexy persona for my business. That's not me. That's not what I sell. However, I do have to admit to myself, like I did in episode three of this podcast, that I conflate my business with my appearance, that I feel I need to be seen as attractive and thin to be successful. And I know that to me, being attractive means being sexy. I gave up on being the cute kind of pretty a long time ago, convinced that my curves destined me for a different image. Men don't look at me and think cute, at least I tell myself that. If they like what they see, it's more like they look at me being sexy versus cute. And I'm only just now beginning to unravel what that means for me and my self-image. I'm Amy Porterfield, and you're listening to Talking Body. I hate admitting all of this, but I promised I would, so here I am. Like I said, I didn't talk about sex a lot growing up, but I do remember one time my mom confided in me when I was older that my dad only desired her when she was thinner, hence all the dieting, Weight Watchers meetings, and everything else. I think she felt like she was preparing me for some sort of harsh reality about men when she told me this, and it really stuck with me. As I got older, I internalized this to mean that because I was overweight, I needed to compensate sexually to make men want me. I lost my virginity at 18 to my first boyfriend. With him and with subsequent partners, my entire goal was to be a vessel for their pleasure. I didn't really think about the sex in terms of my own experience at all. That's not to say I didn't enjoy myself, but the enjoyment came from being desired. I said yes to men because they wanted me, not because I wanted them. When we spoke to women about their sex lives, we prefaced our questions with this. It's not about your sexual history. It's about how sex makes you feel about yourself. Turns out, I wasn't alone when it came to a lot of my hangups. I am very aware of my body in a negative way. In during sexual experiences, I'm always I'm wondering about like, does my belly look fat or is is my body attractive to my partner? And that has been a big barrier in terms of being able to feel comfortable in sexual experiences because you don't want to just be thinking about how much you hate your body the whole time. <laughs> 
there's an interesting dynamic at play between the fact that I don't perceive myself as a really sexy person, um, but obviously the person I'm with thinks I'm sexy. And it's something that I, I reckon with constantly. I don't think I've ever really thought to myself, I'm unattractive and people aren't gonna wanna sleep with me because of my weight or you know, interact sexually with me because of my weight. Like when I'm in the bedroom with my partner, like no matter what my body looks like, like I feel sexy. Part of that is just everything else in my head just goes away and I'm just able to be with my body and like with my partner's body and like enjoy it. I, th I don't think I'm alone in this. I think that often my mind is cluttered with thoughts about my body when I'm, you know, being intimate. And that is often front and center of like, how does my stomach look? Does this position make me look fat? Or, you know, what does he think? All the self-deprecating thoughts kind of come through. Um, right now, I believe that to be sexy is all about being smart and confident and just proud of who you are and just giving that. And if a person can't receive you for who you are, then they shouldn't be able to receive you on like a physical level. You know, I feel like sex is very, it's full of passion and intimacy. And we need to be able to, I guess, give ourselves completely and not just our bodies when we're coming to a sexual scenario. So we should stop focusing on just our bodies alone. I had a pretty terrible relationship when I was in high school through college with my really, my first true boyfriend and it was uh, emotionally and physically abusive. So I feel like the way he treated me and the way he made me feel about my body, that feeling went on with me for many years to come, even though I'm very happy with my husband. It's definitely affected my relationship uh, and our sexual life for many years for me. One common refrain across these interviews was that it helps to hear their partners reinforce that they are beautiful, that they don't notice minute things about their bodies. When I first was with my husband, Hobie, I was amazed at his response to my body. Okay, maybe amazed isn't the right word, but I was confused by it. How could he want me this much if I'm overweight? Is he seeing something else or someone else when he looks at me? All these years later, even as I am fully confident in my relationship and my husband's love for me, this insecurity plays out again and again. Recently, we bought a new house together in Nashville, and it features something I've always wanted, a double shower. Now, this is a little bit TMI, but Hobie and I love this feature. It's fun, and each morning we are taking showers together, chatting about our day, and I just feel extra connected to him. And I feel relaxed, even though I'm naked. But the getting in and getting out is still a challenge. Here's what I mean. A couple weeks ago, I was undressing on my side of the shower, and I was greeted with the sight of my husband watching me, a huge grin on his face. You're so unbelievably sexy, he told me for the millionth time. I could have said nothing. I could have said thank you. I could have trusted this man, this man that I lay my head down next to every night, that I walk through life with, that I tell all my secrets to. Instead, I said, you must be out of your mind. Why did I say that? Why can't I accept compliments about my body, even from the people closest to me? Even though Hobie's words of affirmation have never wavered, there is still a part of me that wonders what he really thinks. 
Surely he found me more attractive when I was at my lowest weight, after the lap band surgery. And if he did, then wouldn't that have to mean that he finds me less attractive now? To find out, I lured my husband to my studio with the promise of a sex-themed episode, and I asked him about it. We'll get to that in a bit, but first, I sat down with Tracy Clark Flory, who's a senior staff writer at Jezebel. Her work has been published in Cosmopolitan, Elle, Esquire, Marie Claire, Salon, The Guardian, Women's Health, and the yearly Best Sex Writing Anthology. She recently wrote a book called Want Me, a memoir all about how she grappled with her desire being reduced to simply being desired. I figured she'd be the perfect person to help me untangle these questions for myself. Hey there, Tracy. Thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. My first question for you is this. In your new book, Want Me, you examine how women sometimes prioritize desirability over their own desire. Can you break that down for my listeners? Absolutely. Yes. Well, growing up in a culture where women are taught that um, their own desires are unacceptable, but the desire to be desired is acceptable. I think many women often end up channeling their desires into being desired. And so that becomes the sort of expression of one's desire, one's sexuality, is sort of working on oneself and making oneself desirable, um, especially to men. Yes, so does that mean that if, if a woman has a desire, she might be unaware of it because she is focusing more on being desirable. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's this developmental psychologist, Deborah Tolman, who has this interesting theory um, about how adolescent girls, especially sort of become estranged from their own bodily feeling because they their own bodily feeling, their own bodily sensation and desires comes up against all of these cultural prohibitions on girls and women desiring. And as well as the sort of dangers of their sexuality within the culture that we live in. And so what often happens is that young girls sort of, um, their desire goes underground and they lose touch with their own bodily feeling and they become so focused on Um, that outside perception of them and on their own desirability. Okay. I see what you're saying there for sure. I want to talk about this concept of the pleasure gap. So I would love for you to explain it. And also I want to know if you think women experiencing less sexual pleasure has something to do with the ways our bodies are policed by the public. The pleasure gap shows that consistently in heterosexual relationships, men report having uh, orgasm far more frequently than do women. And if you look at, if you compare to queer women, queer women do not suffer in the same way. And so what that tells us is that there is something very particular about the experience of desire and pleasure for women in heterosexual relationships. And so, you know, I think it's important to highlight that men are part of the problem, that it's not just that women are sort of estranged from our own bodies because of all of these cultural mandates around women's sexuality. There's also something going on on uh, the part of men in that equation. 
I mean, I think when you at such a young age become um, estranged from your own bodily feeling, I think then you become in sex, you're at such a disadvantage that you're not actually feeling, you're not focused on and you're not rooted in your own body. And so <laughs> that is um, a huge hurdle to overcome to actually be able to then feel pleasure um, in sex because you're, you're not in touch with your own bodily feeling. It's such a fundamental thing there. So absolutely. Thinking a little bit ahead to women who are in their late 20s and 30s, being among the first generation of girls to come of age with the internet, how do you think that affected their self-image and sexuality? I think having explicit access to um, those sorts of images, it creates something to sort of aspire to. And it just sort of adds to what is already there um, in mainstream culture. Um, I think in terms of porn especially, um, I mean, I think on the one hand, there, I think, was a very positive influence for me in terms of ultimately having access to pornography, which I sort of approached as, okay, this is a way for me to become an expert in what men want. That this, I'm not watching it for myself, I'm just watching it because I want to know what men want. That that actually ended up being this, um, this way into actually ultimately finding my own desire that I sort of tricked myself into it because, you know, oh, sure. Yes. It's acceptable for women to, um, to work on being desirable. And so I'm going to watch pornography under the, that pretense. And actually a study has shown that that's a super common way for young women to approach pornography is to say, oh, it's educational. Oh, I'm learning. I'm learning about how to be good in bed. But I think like for me, there was this, um, surprising switch eventually where um, it allowed me to kind of get in touch with my own body and in touch with what I actually desired at the same time that it was presenting this um, image that I that I sort of idealized and held up and took very literally as this is what men want this is what I should be Tell me this, do you find sex to be more of a mental experience or a physical one? Or is it more complicated than that? I would say mental. I mean, I think to me, especially writing about sex as a journalist for over a decade now, the, the main thing um, that has just blown me away is the power of the human mind. Um, and how much of what we experience during sex is all about what's going on in, in the brain. Um, you know, and that can be in the negative, it can be when you are sort of taking yourself out of the experience and you're doing what um, Masters and Johnson called spectatoring, where you're viewing what's happening through a, a third party perspective, that you're really, you're watching yourself have sex rather than actually being in the moment of having sex. Um, and so in that sense, it's, that's all happening in the mind, but also I think the realm of fantasy that sort of allows us to escape, to imagine things as being other than they are, um, can be such a key component to unlocking pleasure, um, and to sort of feeling, feeling free, um, in sex and sexuality. Um, I think so many fantasies are all about sort of creating scenarios that allow us to feel safe enough to feel desire. Um, and so to me, that's like, that's the most fascinating aspect of sex is, is how much of it happens just in the mind. 
you you're a mom now I'm a stepmom and something you said that really resonated with me it's is that it's taboo for mothers to be desired, but it's even more taboo for a mother to do the desiring. So can you talk about the challenges of reconciling sexuality and motherhood? A lot of moms are listening right now. Right. Yes. Mothers are supposed to be pure and chaste and chaste and also to be selfless. I mean, I think like our whole conception of motherhood is all about giving, um, which is so much of our conception around what it means to be a woman more, more generally. But I think it's just so intensified for mothers. You know, the funny thing about moms and sexiness is, of course, there is the concept of the MILF. Um, and but <laughs> yeah, but I th- But I think the thing about that concept that's so interesting is that we have a word for that because it's supposed to be exceptional. It's supposed to be unusual. Oh, that is a mom who is actually desirable, unlike all those other moms who are not. (laughs) The rule Uh, is mothers are not desirable, right? Um, And so, (laughs) yes, mothers are both not desirable um, with rare exceptions that are very notable. and they're not supposed to do the desiring. And so that was something I definitely came up against both in my pregnancy um, and post-pregnancy where, um, you know, I think women so often sort of derive their sense of self from being desired. Um, And then what happens when you sort of cross over into um, being a mom, what happens then when you are not supposed to be desired. You're supposed to sort of be beyond that. You're supposed to not have desires of your own. Um, and so I think there can be this real sort of loss of identity, especially if you previously had been placing a lot of your sort of, you know, sense of self and self-worth in being desirable. Yeah, I can, I can totally relate to that. One question I've been asking all of our guests without even consciously realizing it until now is if you have any advice for listeners about how to live fully inside their bodies and maybe mend the relationship between themselves, their bodies, and their sexuality, what Mm. would you say? That's a good question. And, and I think it falls yeah. a little bit with another question that kind of goes with it that I wanted to ask you is of all the research you've done and, and the people you've talked to and the experiences you've been in, you know, where do you see women struggling the most with this topic and any advice you have around that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In terms of getting in touch with one's body, I mean, honestly, there's, if you want to look at the sort of scientific research around this, there's a lot of um, research around mindfulness. Um, And so there's been a lot of, um, you know, sort of uh, workshops where um, researchers have sort of studied the impact of women going through mindfulness exercises that can be as simple as literally like holding a raisin in their hand and like noting the contours of the raisin and smelling the raisin and tasting the raisin and sort of um, just kind of zooming into, to sensation, um, around something as simple as (laughs) a raisin, which see, it sounds ridiculous on a certain level, but it's really, um, it's about mindfulness and the results are really encouraging in terms of, um, how grounding that kind of exercise can be for people. So I think there's a lot that is really sort of practically helpful in that realm. Um, I think that, um, 
you know, another is just sort of shifting the focus. Um, and that's easier said than done, but like, it's so much easier to look at, um, how we sort of want to change ourselves and how we want to perfect ourselves um, and not sort of appreciating um, the cultural context, the systemic context that, um, that we're really working against. Um, and I think some of that can be sort of freeing and some of that can help um, having that broader cultural context of like, uh, it's not just that like, you know, I'm unhappy with my body. It's that I live in a society that tells me to be unhappy with my body. I think really acknowledging that can help to sort of, um, I don't know, it at least it, it can broaden your perspective a little bit and create an opportunity to sort of um, refocus, to refocus on your own desires, your own feelings. Um, but yeah, it is, it is a really challenging question. Like how, how, when we're so, from so early on, like really, truly before puberty, we're estranged from our own bodies. How do you then like in your thirties or forties or fifties return to your body? Right. Um, and it's so sad that that's a question I'm asking. You know, <laughs> right. so sad that you can spend decades of your life um, feeling this, this disconnect. Um, so true. Yeah. Well, hopefully that the work that you do for sure, and maybe a little piece of this podcast will actually help women in this area of sexuality and um, feeling desire and knowing their desires. So yeah. I cannot thank you enough for coming on this podcast. I truly, truly appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. Thinking about what Tracy shared, I decided to take some time to really sort out what I wanted to ask Kobe before I got him into the studio. After all, the last thing I want to do is tie my self-worth to someone else's opinion of my body. I want to love myself first and foremost, and then I want to be able to fully accept the love and desire my partner is offering me. So when I sat down with Hobie, I wanted to make sure I was going on a fact-finding mission not a validation treasure hunt. We're going to talk about the part of sex that you typically don't talk about. And that is how sex makes you feel. And because you feel a certain way, that's how you show up in your sexual life with your partner. And I was thinking, you're probably going to be glad that your firefighter friends aren't listening to Talking Body, right? Oh, you don't think they're listening? At least some guys listening. <laughs> oh, no, just because they'll know we're uh -huh. talking about this topic. Oh, yeah. Hobie is a retired firefighter. He just retired from San Diego when we moved to Nashville. So that was his profession for many, many years. And so basically I do online marketing and he has nothing to do with that world. He is all about getting his hands dirty in it, firefighter, contractor, like alpha male to the core. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's probably pretty accurate. <laughs>
So I just wanted to set the stage for those of you who don't know my husband, Hobie. That's basically what he's all about. Now I'm going to ask you questions and then we can talk about it. Cool. Okay. Okay. The first question I have for you is what do you think of our sex life? I think we have a good sex life. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's, I think we have a good sex life. I, okay. I always laugh because I, I I think any sex life can probably, everyone always thinks that they could have a better sex life. Right. Agree. I think we have a good sex life. Yeah. I'm going to guess you wish we had more sex. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Okay. So what do you think that I think about my body? That you don't like your body. Why? Why don't I like my body? Uh, you have a lot of different things that you see in a different way than I see for sure. Like you, you look at a picture of another girl and you think that's the way it should look or a, you'll see something. I always see you look at certain things and go, that's how I wish I was. And that's how I see you in a lot of these things. So uh, sometimes it just surprises me what you're seeing through your filter and what I'm seeing through what my filter is. I want to start out with a story that happened that I haven't talked to you about, but it happened so vividly in my mind. And I'm so curious what you thought in the moment, or maybe you didn't have any thoughts, but what you think about it now. So I'm going to set the stage. So Hobie and I moved into this new home in Nashville and it's got this gorgeous bathroom and it has this huge tub. And then on each side of the tubs, uh, the tub, you walk in on two different ways into a shower with two shower heads. So I call it the sexy shower, right? And I mean, this is way, this is going to be a TMI episode, but we love that we get to take showers together every morning. I just feel like that's sexy. And not even like doing anything in the shower, just having conversations and it's being fun. there. It's fun, right? So we were getting undressed on each different side of the tub because you go in two different ways. And I was getting undressed and Hobie looked at me and you said, you are the sexiest woman in the world. That's what you said to me. You are the sexiest woman in the world. And here's where I'm very lucky. Hobie says stuff like that to me all the time. When I'm at my highest weight and when I was at my lowest weight, it, it's never changed, which is wonderful. I know I'm very, very fortunate. However, when you said that, what I said to you was, you are absolutely crazy. That's all I said. You are absolutely crazy. And I just did got into the shower and we went on with our day. When I say things to you or in that, do you remember that moment? Yes. Okay. When I say things to you, when you give me like the nicest compliment, when I'm in my most vulnerable, I'm standing there naked and you said that, what do you think when I have a response like that? Uh, I think I got to say it more. Oh. I think I need to do it more. I, I, so I feel like if I flood you with it, then you won't be allowed, you won't be able to make a comment like that because I mean it when I say it, I'm, I'm I don't say it just to say it. So when that is your response, it instantly makes me think, I need to say it more. I, That's interesting that you take it on yourself. So yeah. do you think that my negative talk and my negative impression of my body, the things that I hate about my body, the, hate, the fact that I hate that I'm overweight, do you think all of that, do you think it's your responsibility to make me feel better about it? Part of it, yeah. Really? Yeah. As my husband? Uh, as your husband, as your best friend, as, yeah, as your confidant, like, it, yeah, I feel that that's a part of my responsibility too. 
Okay. I want to tell you something that I've never told you before. And I want you to tell me how you feel about this. When we started planning our wedding, so we've been married 12 years this month. When we started planning our wedding, we got a venue. It was my first wedding. So I was like, let's do this. We got a venue. I started looking for dresses. We put down a down payment. Remember that big mm-hmm. golf course that was beautiful in Carlsbad? We put down a big uh, down payment. And then uh, when I started looking for dresses, I would go into the stores and I know they're all sample sizes and such, but nothing would fit me. Like, at all. And so I started a boot camp. Do you remember that like 5 a.m. boot camp I, I did? I do right around that. the time we got yeah. engaged. Yeah. So I started going to this boot camp. 5 a.m. It was dark outside. I hated it, but I was determined I was going to fit into a wedding dress. And then the boot camp, I didn't stay consistent with it. The weight wasn't coming off. So I told you, you know, we this makes me want to cry, but we should just save money. And, and save the money and just like have a little wedding on the beach, which we did. We ended up having a little ceremony. My brother-in-law married us. My sister and my niece and nephew were there and our moms. And that's all. I didn't want to have a wedding because I didn't want to be fat at our wedding. Yeah, I knew that. How would you even know that? Because I never even told you. I knew that. And how does that make you feel? Uh, it really bummed me out, but I didn't know how to broach the subject as far as like, there was nothing again, that magic word or phrase that I wish that I had, there was no way I could have figured out how to tell you. What would you have told me? Well, I I did tell you that it it was okay, that you looked beautiful, that you could go out there and nothing. And I'd be ecstatic about us having a wedding, but it's not, you know, it's not me that, has to be okay to do that. So one of my biggest regrets is that we didn't have a wedding. And I know people are thinking you could do it. You could do it on your 20 anniversary or whatever. I just mean that first wedding. I wish when we got engaged, we had a big wedding. I wore a beautiful wedding dress and I didn't because of my weight. And I just wonder how many things have we missed out on together because of my insecurities around my weight. There's so many things that I want to do and want to try that hold me back because of my weight. And that's why I'm doing this podcast. I think you know that on this podcast, I'm not the teacher. Obviously, I shouldn't (laughs) be teaching this, but I am a student because we're talking to other body positivity and acceptance experts. Like, how do I let go of this? Because don't you think there's so much out there we could do together, both in the bedroom and out in the real world, if I would just love my body or even accept, I don't even have to jump to love, just like, accept this is me and how fortunate am I that I get to have this body to do these things? Oh, it would would be limitless. It'd be limitless what, how much you could, I mean, what, what we would do, could do, I mean, it's. Yeah, it would, it would be, it'd be a changer. If, do you understand that no matter what you say to me, that, uh, the issue of me accepting my body has to do with me and not you? Yes. You can say that 400,000 times every day and it's, I'm still going to take it. Why? Because I love you. I love everything about you. There's nothing I don't love about you. Nothing. 
So one thing I can't understand is that, or what I want to understand is I have, my weight has fluctuated by like 80 pounds in our relationship. That sounds like a lot, but it's true. I have been 80 pounds lighter in this relationship here. And so I talked about my lap band surgery and I talked about uh, having ulcers. And so what do you remember for me getting lap band surgery, losing all that weight, being the thinnest I've ever been? I felt like we had tons more sex. I felt like when I was thinner, do you think so? No. Wow. Not my even, not my recolle- recollection is maybe I was more free and more open and not so reserved. I don't know. Maybe this is the stories I tell myself. Yeah. And it, and that's what I'm always curious about what your filter tells you. Cause when you were at your skinniest, since we've been together was one of the hardest parts, hardest times in our marriage. Unquestioned. Why? You were sick all the time. You were unhappy all the time. You were short tempered. Like there was nothing about you that was the loving, caring person that you are. Well, this is the first time I'm ever hearing you say that. I did not know that. I thought at that weight, I had the whole world ahead of me. Anything was possible. I looked great. I felt great. I thought we were having more sex. I thought our relationship was better. I hear the word lap band and I start to shake because it, it's it was horrible. It was horrible. So you'd rather me be at my heavier weight without the lap band versus like looking great and feeling sexy as at the thinner weight. The weight has nothing to do with it to me. Then what is it? It, To me, I want you at your confident, like just happy with who you are. To me, the rest of it comes into play with that. I don't think the lap band, not having a lap band, the... weight gain, weight loss. Like it, to me, it's all about you being happy because when you're happy, we're happier. Like it's just, when you feel good about yourself, I feel like we just, we feed each other and we just keep getting happier and we keep like getting more playful. Like it's, you know, when you were at your skinniest, I'd have never swatted you on the behind because you'd have smacked me in the face because okay. you're pretty angry. <laughs> I did not know this. I feel self-conscious about my body a lot of the time. Is that in your eyes, true or yes, false? Very yes. True. So with that, do you, can you tell when I'm feeling self-conscious during sex? Yes. And what does that look like to you? Uh, like, like you pull back affection. Like when, if I were to make like a playful move of, of, grabbing your backside or uh or my boobs or, or your boobs or nibbling <laughs> on an ear or, you know going for something i can feel you pull back from it i i can feel you're uncomfortable with it and it's weird because it makes you i in my interpretation it makes you feel disconnected and then it makes me feel disconnected i was gonna say like how does that make you feel if if i'm doing that well, the, the one thing about us that I like, the, the one of the best things about us, in my opinion, is that we both take everything on for the other one. So when I feel you feeling uncomfortable, I want to make you feel comfortable, like in a comfortable way, not an over, over demanding way. Right. I want to make you feel better. And it, it always, to me, is when my approach was wrong or this was wrong. Like I, I internalize it, that it's me. 
well, that breaks my heart. Because it's not break your heart. That's just two people that are that want the other person to be so happy. I know. But what what hurts me is that because I'm self conscious of my body, it's true, you'll touch me sometimes and I'll pull back, you'll touch my stomach and I'll think you're feeling a roll. And I don't want you to touch that. And then to think that you think your approach is wrong, you we've had actually, I'm not surprised by this. Now that I think about it, we've had conversations where you would say to me, I think you don't like how I touch you. And I'm like, no, never. I love how you touch me. But in my head, I go to all these things of he, what is he going to think? Or he must feel like that feels disgusting or I'm at my heaviest right now. So I just pull back. We think we have a great sex life, but imagine how much better it would be if, if I didn't have these insecurities and I fully can you imagine if i fully gave myself to you we will, you wouldn't be doing this much recording <laughs> it is it is true that i don't feel i am so in love with hobie and i feel like i do not give my full self to him i am always holding a little bit back due to my insecurities yeah that is very very true but it's hard not to i get it though because it's hard you look back at the stuff you missed because of it but that's, to me, that's one part that always makes me nervous with you when we talk about this topic. You are, you look back on everything that you missed. And I don't even look, I try not to look back. Like, what, what are we doing from today forward? Like, that's the only thing that matters. That conversation hurt but I needed to have it. I needed to hear Hobie say that the secret shame that I had carried about our wedding wasn't a secret at all. I needed to hear him say that he didn't know how to talk to me about this because at the end of the day, he's not paying me compliments as some sort of transaction for sex or marital peace. He's telling me what he truly honestly sees. And what I learned from this conversation is that he and I are seeing completely different things. I'm not going to wake up and start loving my body just because my husband tells me to, but I do consider myself a rational person. And if my husband looks at me every day for years and sees a beautiful, healthy woman, I have to ask myself why I don't see the same thing. One of us is lying and I'm starting to think it might not be Hobie. few weeks ago when I sat down with Dr. Lena Abirafa, our conversation turned from a discussion of racial stereotypes to another focus of her work, gender-based violence. It all starts, she explains, with body autonomy. One in 16 women reported that their first sexual experience was forced. Ugh. So that's in the US. So if you don't know that you can say no or that you don't have the rights to your own body or that you know consent, those types of conversations aren't, you know, I'm not saying that those could have been prevented because you know this is not you know, the fault never ever is with us. But the idea that uh, conversations around 
who owns my body should start with children, boys and girls should start with basic sex ed that needs to happen. That is mandatory and nationwide everywhere, every country all the time, not a shame and blame type of sex ed, but a real valid, like this is an experience. You know, you are going to have sex in some form at some point. You know, here's how you own it. Here's how you uh, make it work for you. Here's how you enjoy it. All those kinds. We don't talk about that stuff at all. My mom hates when I say this, but it's very true. I remember I grew up Catholic and she made me believe that sex hurt unless you were married. Like this is what I always believed. It was going to hurt unless you're married. She tells me she denies it, but I said, mom, that is what you taught me. So yeah, this not hurts how you enjoy it. Yeah, no one ever said, hey, you're supposed to feel good. This was we don't talk about sexual pleasure for women. I mean, why? We don't yeah. I don't even understand how that's not a factor. It's really as if we are led to believe that you are this gift that is supposed to be preserved, unwrapped on your wedding night. It's your husband's right to open it. You're sent from your father's house to your brother to your husband's house. And you know, he's supposed to do whatever he wants to do with it. And you're really not supposed to be a part of that experience. You're just, you know, that's what men do and that's what men need. And, you know, and that's, that's not an Arab thing. That's a global thing. And, you know, as yes. far as like, I can give a concrete example for, for us, you know, as Arabs and as Arab Americans also who kind of import some of these, some of these practices and beliefs. I have a niece, she's six. And when she was for, for age two, maybe I had a conversation with my sister where we said, we're not going to let anybody kiss her or hug her unless they ask her and you know, that's a really young age to start that kind it's a really radical thing for a culture that is super huggy and tactile you know you you're not supposed to like grandma's not supposed to ask can I hug you grandma just grab right. you you know so that and that's true across a lot of almost all cultures I think like people don't think that they need to ask permission but when it comes to young girls especially this idea of is it okay if I hug you? Or would you rather that we just high five, you know, giving them the option to say no, every single time gives wow. them the sense that this is, uh, I own my body. And if I hugged you yesterday, I don't have to hug you today. I might just shake your hand or wave and that has to be okay. And it's a hard practice to, to implement, especially in cultures where they're like, I just, what, what are you doing? You know, I want to just hug this kid. Uh, I think it's really empowering for little people to be able to do that, to realize from very early on that it's not uh, something that anybody else owns or anyone else has a right to. And then, you know, naming of genitalia and, and all those kinds of experiences and, and giving words and vocabulary to the experience, not cutesy like shame type of stuff, but uh, creating a conversation. I think it's really courageous to do that. And everybody should be doing that everywhere. I can't even imagine growing up with you as my auntie, being six years old and having an auntie like you. I can't even imagine what she's going to grow up to be. So that oh, that's very fantastic. exciting. I, lo I love it because I feel like, you know, let us, the, the world is messy enough and there are enough messages and, and images and objectifications and, you know, the media and advertising and politics and, and the world and whatever. There's enough crappy stuff to sift through. If you can at least create one space that is safe and that is equitable and that, and that works and is open, you know, then do that. Then do that one thing. You can't control anything that happens outside on the street. But right. at least let, let's have home be a, a, the right kind of place. I think that reclaiming my right to experience sex for me, to center my pleasure in the experience, is an important step in answering this question I have about loving my body. 
I need to own every part of my body fully, including my sexuality, if I'm ever going to have a clear picture of what I want to change about it. That can never come from somebody else. Not my husband, not my doctor, not social media or porn or reality television. And if I do that, if I reclaim my autonomy and my sex life gets better, well, that's a pretty nice bonus. Talking Body is hosted by me, Amy Porterfield. The show is produced and edited by Chelsea Harfouche with production support from Sterling Coates. Episodes are written and researched by Chelsea Harfouche and Amy Porterfield. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Special thanks to all the women who participated in the interview and research portion of this podcast. Talking Body is a 3% Chance production.